0: Father, here in this portion of Scripture, we enter into deep and choppy waters from so many angles. We read of your Son nearing his climactic work on the cross in Jerusalem. We read his thoughts, his words about it. We read the implications and the applications he makes to us. Such deep, personal lessons for us to learn here. Lessons about ourselves and lessons about him. Teach us, we pray, and mold us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, rather than introduce the sermon or even explain the unusual title, I'm just going to dive in and save my introductory remarks for the end, because A, I can, and because B, I think it's going to actually serve us better to do it that way. This portion we're looking at, verses 17 through 29 of Matthew chapter 20, has uh, two main movements, but they hang together. We'll see that the first part connects with the last part and makes it all a bit of a sandwich. I'm going to preach through all of this this week, and then, Lord willing, next week I'm going to focus on one particular aspect that I'll only touch on lightly today. So, that said, let's go ahead and dive in and see first Roman numeral 1, The king's destination in verses 17 through 19. The king's destination, as I've translated it for you. And as Jesus was going up into Jerusalem, he took aside the twelve disciples privately, and in the way he said to them, Look, we're going up into Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles in order to mock and whip and crucify Him. And on the third day, He will be raised. So first, let's look at the simple part of this. Letter A, the simple part, is in verses 17 and 18a. And as Jesus was going up into Jerusalem, He took aside the twelve disciples privately. And in the way, He said to them, look, we're going up into Jerusalem. And the Son of Man... dot dot dot." Well, this is the next move in there. As they've been... Progressing, they've left Galilee and they've been, been progressing towards Jerusalem southward, and that is the ultimate destination here. Now that's simple enough because uh, Passover is nearing, and that's the time for all Jewish men to go to Jerusalem, and that's not a great surprise. And plus, uh, even in the in terms of his own ministry as the Messiah, Jerusalem is going to be the kingdom, uh, the 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 capital the center of the kingdom of God. And so ultimately, he's going to have to end up in Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem now, he says. And he says, the Son of Man, he calls himself. Now, I just want to single out these two aspects and understand them prophetically because they're both big issues prophetically. First of all, Jerusalem. Now, as I said, Jerusalem's the capital of Israel, and, and that's where God said that the men need to come for these annual feasts, one of which, the big, a big one being a Passover. But Jerusalem looms large in the prophecies of the Old Testament, in prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, in fact. Turn to Isaiah chapter 2 with me. Pretty easy to find, just a big book that comes after Psalms. Next big book after Psalms is Proverbs, and then you hit Isaiah. Look at chapter 2. It's a glorious prophecy. Chapter 2, starting with verse 1, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, beheld concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, it will be that in the last days, so this is not the immediate future, but the ultimate God's consummation of His plan for the world. In the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh, that is the mountain on which Jerusalem sits, will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may instruct us from His ways, that we may walk in His paths." For from Zion the law will go forth and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And it goes on, He will judge between many nations and it will be the end of war. A glorious uh, prophecy. But notice the elements here. You see Jerusalem and you see the nations. And Jerusalem is the center of the coming kingdom and the nations flow up to it. And from from it comes the law of Yahweh, because Messiah will sit on his throne in Jerusalem and he'll rule the world from Jerusalem. So the nations will come up. Just notice that. Keep those elements in your mind. Jerusalem is where the king is going to sit and nations will flow there to learn the word of God from the king, to learn the word of God. Imagine that. Bible studies taught by Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be in that Bible study. That's the place to be. And that's where the nations were going to go. And then this other element, he says, the son of man going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will dot, dot, dot. Now this phrase, Son of Man, where does that come from? It comes from the book of Daniel chapter 7. So please turn there with me. It's going to have a real impact on our understanding of this passage. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a night, uh, visions of the night, in which he sees all the kingdoms of man coming up from the the tumultuous sea, and they're all frightening, fearful animals. But after the succession of human kingdoms, he sees this new move. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, see not up from the ocean, but down from heaven, comes one like a son of man, not like a fearsome animal, but like a son of man. Was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and mens of every tongue may serve him. his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. <clears throat> so put these two prophecies together: the son of man comes down with from the clouds of heaven, and where does he come to? Well, he comes to Jerusalem. That's where he sets up his throne. And what happens uh, to Jerusalem? He, he rules there. He reigns there. And who goes up to Jerusalem? All the nations do. Now, what's another word from a Jewish perspective for nations? Hint, starts with a G. Gentiles. Now, with that in mind now, look back at Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem And he takes them aside and he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, not shocking. But now let's look at the shocking part, letter B, the shocking part in verses 18b and 19. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles in order to mock and whip and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised. Now, every part of this is the exact opposite of what should happen. Every part of this is wrong. The Son of Man should go to Jerusalem, but there he should set up his kingdom. What should the Jewish uh, leaders do? Not looters, but the Jewish leaders, what should they do when the Son of Man comes to Jerusalem? They should obey him. They should submit to him. They should welcome him. They should enthrone him. He should be on their shoulders. And what should the Gentiles do to the son of man at Jerusalem? They should flow and submit to him and learn the law of Yahweh from him. But, and he should reign there and his kingdom should be without end. But what do we read here? When he goes to Jerusalem, he'll be delivered over. He'll be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. Well, that's a collective word meaning the the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews in Jerusalem. He'll be betrayed to them, and they'll condemn him to death, not to reign from the throne of David. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Why will they deliver him over to the Gentiles? Because they don't have the death penalty authority they're under jewish rule so if they want him killed and they want him killed they've got to deliver him over to the gentiles so the jews who should worship and follow him betray him condemn him to death the gentiles who should flow to him to hear his word will mock and whip and crucify him that's how he will die Now, notice here, first of all, there's two betrayals. He will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. Who does that? Judas. Where's he right now? Hearing this, walking along with them. But he, one of Jesus' own disciples, one of his apostles, will betray Jesus. And he will betray them to the rulers of the Jews, and then the Jews will betray him, will hand him over to the Gentiles. Why do they? Two reasons. First of all, they condemn him to death, but they don't, they don't have the power to execute. Rome has not given them that. So to kill him, they need to bring in the Gentiles. There's so much irony, so much bitter irony. These absolutely self-righteous religious prigs need to use the pig dog Gentiles who they think were created to fuel hell and keep its fires burning. they got to use him, them, to kill their Messiah to keep their religion. You know, their religion was intact. Their relationship of God with God was zero. But they have to betray him to the Gentiles first of all because that's the way to get him killed legally. And More irony there. But to get him legally murdered uh, they need the Gentiles. But It's not enough that he just die. To use our terms, he has to be canceled. He has to be finally and fully discredited, shamed and disgraced. And they're just the people to do the job. There's nothing they love better than humiliating a Jewish upstart. And that's the way they're going to present Jesus to them. And then let the soldiers do their worst and let the government do its worst. And that's the plan. That is the plan. So look at look over it that way. Deliver it over to the Gentiles. Notice how he says this in order to. This is the purpose. This is why they hand him over. Not simply to be executed, but to mock, to mock him, God the Son in human flesh. He who's seen me has seen the Father, Creator and Lord, to mock Him. And to whip Him like a dog or like a stubborn donkey or like a disobedient slave. To whip Him and crucify Him. Now there it is. Crucify Him. That is the worst death. That is the most disgraceful death. I remind you again, nobody wore a cross around His neck as a piece of jewelry, any more than we would wear a gallows around our neck, although such a perverse culture as we, we might just. But they would not even speak of the cross in polite society. That was the worst, most humiliating death. The lowest of the low died that way. That is not the way to execute a citizen or somebody of any kind of standing. That's the way to humiliate naked Transfixed to a cross, slowly suffering and dying before the eyes of all. That would be the death that he would die. This is what he's telling him he's about to do. All of this, he announces them before it happens. He's go- now, you would think if somebody knew all this would happen, the, 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 the verses would read, we are going in the opposite direction from Jerusalem so that these things don't happen. But Jesus is going to Jerusalem so that these things will happen. Why? But notice too that after this, as Spurgeon calls it, this sevenfold midnight, comes this bright, bright light of something that is just as certain as all the other parts. The betrayals are certain. The condemnation is certain. The whipping, the mocking, the crucifixion, all certain. But what else is certain? What does he say? On the third day he will be raised. So every part of that is equally certain and Jesus announces it all to them before it happens. The theory is this should have allowed them to prepare themselves for it but what it actually did we'll see in just a few moments. So think of this. We've looked at it expositionally. Think of it emotionally. Think of Jesus saying this. Remember, Jesus was not a superman. He wasn't an android. He wasn't a cyborg. As we just finished studying, he was fully man as he was fully God. He was just as much a human being as he was God. And he had just the same human emotions that any unfallen human being would have. So... What did it feel like him to say this? To say that he was about to be betrayed, walking by the side of the person who is going to betray him. All of these things that he, he lays out, which of them cut deepest in him? Which betrayal, which mocking, which indignity cut the deepest as Jesus spoke this to them? And emotionally, what must it have been for them to hear it? The way they respond, well, Mark tells us that they walked along in horror and fear. That's appropriate. We don't see any of that in Matthew. And I've wondered sometimes if they have what what is called today perceptual blindness. Do you know what perceptual blindness is? It's when something is so unexpected and just so doesn't fit, you don't even see it. You don't even notice it's there because it just... You know, one of these things is not like the other, and it's so not like the other, I don't even see it, because it makes no sense. And that's the way they seem to respond to this emotionally. They don't know what to do with it, except inappropriate things, as we'll see. But think of it doctrinally, too. Jesus has told them what appalling things are about to be done to him. He's just, like reading the news, like reading tomorrow's news today, he's just told them, These things are going to be done to the Son of Man in Jerusalem by our leaders using the Gentiles. What hasn't he told them, though? Well, he hasn't told them why Almighty God is letting this happen. And he hasn't told them why God the Son, who can still a storm with a word allows it to happen to himself. In fact, why? He walks right into it. He doesn't tell him any of those things. He doesn't tell them any of those things. In fact, I won't either till he does later in this section. So we've seen the king's destination. Now let's look at the disciples' aspirations in verses 20 through 24 because this is what Matthew tells us happens next. Now, if I were writing it, I wouldn't think that this is the next thing I would expect to happen. But Matthew tells us what happens next. We see the disciples' aspirations first coming from a mother. Letter A, coming from a mother. We see her request in verses 20 and 21. Then came up to him, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, with her sons, bowing down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She says to him, say that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your kingdom. Okay. This happened, and then this happened. And Matthew says then. So it may not have happened three seconds later, but it's the next thing he tells us. So he means us to say, okay, Jesus said... These horrible things are about to happen to me. And then mom comes up asking a favor for her sons. Okay, Uh, let's try to put this together. So first, let's answer the question, who she is. Who is this woman who comes up? You say, well, she's the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay, thank you. That's very good. And that's true. But as we compare Scripture with Scripture, it's likely that she is um, Salome or Salome, depending on how you say it, S-A-L-O-M-E, not Salami, but Salome. Don't get hungry. So her name is probably Salome, and she is actually the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Huh? So if she's the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, then who is she to Jesus? She's his aunt, his tía. She's his aunt. And then who are James and John to Jesus? His cousins. So, uh, nepotism much? She's coming and asking this for her children, his relatives, his cousins. So, you you combine the family ties with a mother's heart, and uh, you see that she's asking for something for her sons, asking for something from nephew Jesus for the Messiah, the King, for her sons, his cousins, by the way. That's who she is. So, what does she want? Well, we just learned last week there are going to be 12 thrones with the 12 apostles sitting on them, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Remember that from last week. So, well, I mean, so someone has to sit on his right and someone on his left. Why not her boys? Why not such a good boy little James and such a good boy little John? Why can't they sit on his left and right? And besides, Peter, who seemed to be first, He's gotten some pretty good scoldings. He's gotten some good scoldings when he told Jesus not to go up and get crucified. Jesus called him Satan. He just got a good scolding. He asked about rewards, remember? And then Jesus tells this parable where the landowner ends up chewing out one of the workers. And as we remarked, that probably meant to call Peter and his ambitions To mine. So if Peter maybe is in disfavor, now might be a good time to put in a good word for my boys and see if I can't secure a nice little job for them in the kingdom of God. So that's who she is. That's what she wants. And now let's ask the question what in the world? (laughs) That's what goes in letter C. What in the world? I mean, on the one hand, this is staggeringly insensitive. He's just talked about his humiliating, degrading, appalling death coming up. And she comes up and wants to ask for promotions for her boys right after that. So in her defense, remember, Jesus had taken the apostles aside and told them this. So maybe she didn't hear that. But you know who did? <laughs> her two boys did. And they, they sure could have said, Mom, now's not the best time. Now is not the moment for this. But they didn't. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, I mean, do notice this. She believes that the kingdom's coming. If she knew these horrible things were coming, maybe perceptual blindness hit her as well. But regardless, she believes that he's going to have a kingdom. And there's going to be thrones. And somebody's going to sit on his left and right. And why not her sons? Only in the human mind can such absolutely contradictory things coexist. You know, maybe if you're 12 or 15, you think, I just don't see how anybody could think two things that are so opposite of each other. But probably if you're 20, 30, 40, certainly 50, 60, 70, oh, you see it all the time. You see people believe things that just don't make any sense set down next to each other. But they I mean, save the whales, kill the unborn children. Same brain. How do those things coexist? Fallen human mind ruined by sin. What can I say? So here it is in her as well. Only in a fallen human mind can such contraries coexist. So, we see it from a mother. We see her request. We see his response, number two, in verses 22 and 23. How does he respond to this? Well, he responds by saying, and by the way, just to back up a little bit, when she says, say that these two sons of mine, it's like she's saying, give me your word. Just promise me right now that this is going to happen. Yikes. So, in response, Jesus in answer says, you folks do not know what you're asking for yourselves. Now, that's a little different from your familiar translation. Just to show you, the verb is, is plural. He's not just saying this to her. Madam, you don't know what you're asking. It's plural, because she's coming asking on behalf of her sons. As, as we see, they are with her in this. They share her desire. So, He speaks to all of them first. You folks do not know what you're asking for yourselves. That's what's called a Greek middle uh, verb, meaning it's something I am doing for myself. You're asking this for yourselves. You don't know what you're asking for yourselves. And then, obviously, this next question is just to the two boys, the two men. Are you both able to drink the cup which I myself am about to drink? And they say to him, yep, you just got, oh, kids, I mean, all the confidence of youth, good grief, the things that a young person is sh- sure he can do, Till he, I, I tell you sometimes, well, it makes you feel 100 years old, but some, some young person comes to you with all the absolute confidence that he's going to have no trouble resisting this temptation or accomplishing this and you just think oh dude wait till you get some miles under those tires you won't speak so confidently of yourself but they're sure I mean well and in their defense they've not really been tested yet Jesus has been the one standing in front of them taking all the bullets and arrows Uh, of course as we know because we've had the benefit of reading the whole story how does this work out for them not so good they're not so able are they when the test comes, where are they? They are heading for the tall grass. So, But now, in the bright light of day, in the sun, walking along this path together with all my friends, yeah, they say, absolutely, yeah, we can drink that cup. What, what, what cup is he talking about? Well, it's the cup he just described. Cup in the Old Testament is used in a number of ways. It's often used of, of suffering and judgment. It's used of trial and pain. And obviously, it's, it's what he just talked about. This is, this is what I'm going to do. And can you drink this? And they say, oh, yes, absolutely. We can totally drink this. So um, we learn learned something very important about Jesus' thinking here, and it's going to come out more in a moment. But there's the mention of Jerusalem, which they all know is going to be the capital of the kingdom of God. And see, this is the way it hits them. They hear Jerusalem and Son of Man, and they think what? Kingdom. That's where their mind goes. And, you know, understandably, given what the Old Testament prophesies, they think kingdom, and they think crowns, and they think rule, and authority, and glory, and power. That's the way they think. Well, you know, Jesus is heading for a crown too. And he's heading for a throne too. And he's threading, heading for glory and power like no human being ever has had or ever will have, right? But what's between here and there? Yeah. On the way to the throne is the cross. And is it going to be any different for them? No, it's not. And this is what he's got to teach them. The way to the cross lies through suffering. It lies through service. And He's going to open that up in just a moment. Service and suffering. So they want the crowns. Do they want the cross? Are they willing to wear the cross? So he says, are you both able? And they say, yep. <laughs> and he says, verse 23, on the one hand... My cup you will drink. So they are ultimately going to suffer. They're going to suffer persecution and, and martyrdom, at least in James's case. John, how he died, we're not so certain, but he did at least suffer banishment uh, and suffering. So you will drink of my cup. Um, but he says, to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give, but rather it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, I just want to say something doctrinal in passing if you 've been with us for some months and you 've studied the truth that Jesus is God, fully God he, the only thing that makes him different from the Father and the Son uh, Father and the Spirit is that he 's the Son, but they 're all equally God, Father, Son, and Spirit are equally God, so If he's God, then why does he say this is the father's to give? This is the sort of a thing that a Jehovah's Witness might throw at you. And if you haven't studied this through, it might catch you off guard. Well, but is this the son in his glory before the incarnation in all of the ages of eternity saying this? No, this is the son incarnate who, remember, did what? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and submitted himself and came to do the Father's will. This is God the Son incarnate. And of course, the man Christ Jesus was in submission to the Father. And this was a decision of the Father's. So he, he rolls it to the Father. It's not mine to give. It's for those for whom it's prepared. So that's the aspirations from a mother on behalf of these two uh, kids, these two young men. Now let's look at the disciples' aspiration toward each other in verse 24. But when that ten heard, they were indignant concerning the two brothers. Now, brothers and sisters, I wish I could say that they were indignant because it was so inappropriate. And I wish I could say that they were indignant because it was such an offensive thing to say at this juncture. And I wish I could say that they were indignant because clearly these two did not understand what it meant to be disciples. But that's not why they were indignant. Why were they indignant? They wanted to sit on the left and right of Jesus. They wanted those positions of of, pro, of prominence and of privilege and glory and authority. So that's why they're indignant. And you see, I mean, if you've been reading Matthew and remembering what you're reading, you see... This is something that they just don't get. This just keeps coming up. This whole thing keeps coming up. And as you read the other Gospels, you see times that Matthew doesn't even talk about when they're arguing about this and this is a big issue. I mean, if, you, if you're in Matthew, you could just turn back to chapter 18. And at this time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So he, he already talked about this. He already talked about greatness in the kingdom. What was his answer? He, He took a child and sat the child in front of them and said, you need to start all over like this. You need to humble yourself like this child who just came when I called him and just standing here to do whatever I want him to do. That's what you need to be like. Okay, got it. By the way, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And he teaches them again. Okay, all right, got it. Now, can I be the greatest in the kingdom? No, 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 and then he has to teach them again. So this is obviously not something that they're getting on the first time. Now, I'd like to just step aside and make two very personal applications for you Christians here uh, from two big things we've looked at first. Let me, let me go chiastically. I'll start with the most recent one, then I'll go to the further back one. I find it very encouraging that Jesus is willing to teach over and over again. Anyone else here feel the same way? Are you encouraged that Jesus doesn't deal with his disciples by saying, I'm going to say this just one time. And then if you don't get it, then we're through. Oh no, I need to hear it again and again and again and again. And, and I, I, it, it encourages me to see how Jesus bears with these slow learners. I take so much encouragement from slow learners and from the long suffering and the patience and the kindness of Jesus. And okay, let's plot the charts one more time and make, it, make him a little flannel gram out and lay this out for you boys again. And he does, uh, praise his name, praise his long suffering, kindness and patience that he does this. I find great encouragement in that. But now going back to something further, remember I said, all the things that he said are going to happen. Are going to happen. He he says I'll go to Jerusalem. I'll be betrayed. I'll be condemned. I'll be mocked. I'll be crucified. All those things happen. They absolutely certainly happen. But also was he raised from the dead? Absolutely. That also happened. What does he say to us? He says in the book of Acts. Through many tribulations. What? We must enter the kingdom of God. So, have Christians had many tribulations? Are we having many tribulations now? Mm, Check. Many tribulations. So if we're having many tribulations, what does that mean is also going to happen? We're going to enter the kingdom of God. Or turn to Hebrews chapter 12 with me just for a sec. So Hebrews 12, the writer says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, For consider him, the the Greek word suggests, consider as an analogy, consider the example of him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary, fainting in the heart. And then he goes on to talk about the discipline of the Lord. What's he saying here? Look at Jesus. Don't ever forget Jesus, Christian. The path for him was suffering, shame, crucifixion, the crown. What's the path for us following that Jesus? Suffering, shame, carrying our cross, the crown. We're at a moment in history where Christians are more and more hated, despised, marginalized with all all the power that the world can bring. And we're just nobody. A few decades ago, Christians had some power in in the public arena in America, but now less and less and less marginalized, insignificant. Well, if that's the path of faithful... Service and discipleship. Then that's the path we walk, because we're following Jesus, and that path doesn't vary. But where does that path end? The world can throw the very worst it has toward it did towards Jesus. No, is there anything the world held back from Jesus of hatred and shame and despising and ridicule? Not one thing. And where is he now? Sitting at the right hand of God. One day to come and rule. And his saints will rule with him. So we're in the cross part. We're in the suffering tribulation part. But the glory part is coming. Because Jesus is coming. And that is just as certain. As the suffering part. So take heart. You look at the suffering and persecution. Just say check. Because I know what's next on the list. Amen. So back to this passage. Roman numeral three, the king's demonstration. So we've had the king's destination, the king, the disciples aspiration. Now the king's demonstration. Verses 25 through 28. And he lays out before us two ways in verses 25 through 27, two ways. Boy, this is a very common uh, structure you see in the Bible Uh, Two ways. Psalm 1 has two ways. uh, The way of the blessed man and the way of the man the Lord doesn't know and will judge. You see that all over the place in Proverbs. The two ways. The ways of wisdom. The way of folly. Now Jesus lays out before us two ways. First the way of the lost in verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know, so he's having another little team meeting here. He's had them aside once and told them what was coming. Now he's got a little remedial instruction to do. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exert oppressive authority over them. So in the Gentile world, which is to say in the world world, in the kingdom of man, power is everything. In the kingdom of man, authority is everything. Uh, it's all about power and it's all about oppression. I, I tell you, uh, the older I get, the more I see that, the more I understand that. I used to think that's what cynical people said about politics. And now I guess I'm a cynical person too. Because how else do you explain, explain, how else do you explain people who are 500 years old and can't even sit up and take nourishment who will not resign their office? What do they think they're accomplishing? Do they not have mon- enough money? Do they not have security for the rest of their life? Are there not people who could take their place? Why do they hold on to it? Power. Because power is everything in that world. Power is everything in that world. And he uses two very picturesque words, one of them uh, pretty uncommon. But he says, Lord it over. So let me try to make this unpainful but understandable. Uh, the word for Lord is kurios. That's the noun, kurios. Uh, to be a Lord is kurio. This is kata kurio. This has the verb with a preposition uh, stuck onto it. Now, we do that all the time. We might say that some, well, something's important, but if we really want you to pay attention, what do I say? It's super important. Or if somebody kind of tends to be critical, okay, that's one thing, but if he just can't seem to stop, what do I say he is? hypercritical. So you get it. So this is that. This is not simply being a lord. This is being an oppressive lord. This is uh, way too literally. It's like he lords down or he lords against. And the same thing for the next word. The the Greek uh, noun for authority is exousia. The verb is exousiazo. This is kat exousiazo. To exercise oppressive authority to hold people down with authority, to to crush people under authority. So uh, hippie types look at this and say, well, that's right. There should not be any authorities or leaders anywhere. Is that what Jesus the Lord is saying? Uh, no, <laughs> no, not in any way. He's not saying, get your tie-dye shirt, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. That's not, and just ask each other what you want to do. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? That's not what he's saying. He's all for the proper use of authority. God invented authority. Romans 13, hello? All authority is by God. God has ordained authority, whether in the family or in church or in society. God has ordained authority. But this is oppressive authority. This is dominating, domineering authority that allows for no freedom and no individuality. I mean, like, sort of thing that just, like, would... Oh, I don't know. Make absolutely everybody wear masks just to see if you can make everybody do it. You know, something like that. Something just, to, just to, to show that people will do what you say if you say it. Domineering, abusive authority. And he says, you know, that's what goes on in the Gentile world. That's the way of the lost. That's the way of the world. But what does he say next? Number uh, Verses 26 and 27. The way of the Lord. But he says, it will not be thus among you. Now that will not be, that's uh, what you call an imperitable future, sorry. What it, but what it means is, this is both a future tense and a command, saying, you are not gonna do this. It's, it's a command, you must not do this. This must not be the way it is among you. But rather, whoever among you wishes to become great will be your servant. And whoever among you wishes to be first will be your slave. So the point is not about having no authority. I mean, after all, Jesus is not obeying them, right? He's not going to die because they want him to or they tell. Him. He's actually doing what they, none of them wants him to do. But is he serving them when he does it? He's about to say that. He's serving them. He's not obeying them. But what does it mean that he's serving them? He's doing whatever they need for their good. He's doing what he's doing for their benefit. And that's what he's talking about. In the the, the world, everything is for my benefit. To secure my authority, my grip, my power, my rule, my reign, my glory, my everything. That's what it's about. But in the kingdom of God, in the citizens of the kingdom of God, it's the opposite of that. Everything is for the glory of God and the good of my brother. And so he says, it must not be that way among you. Whoever wishes to become great will be your servant. Now, it's, it's sad that we see, however, in evangelicalism, there's a very uh, uh, locked in uh, culture of uh, celebrity evangelicals and people who are an untouchable class of leaders and if they were the Jesus kind of leaders, they very well could have prominence and they could have big platforms and all sorts of stuff, but it would all be about benefiting others. I, I'll never forget, I was at a conference, happened to have a, a seat in the, in the front section because um, uh, I, I knew one of the speakers and um, was sitting next to somebody whose name almost all of you would, would recognize, but don't even try to guess. Uh, please and I was sitting I was standing near this person and somebody on the other side of the of the ropes so one of the unwashed you know the people the people who paid for the conference those people who, who, who made it possible to rent this arena and everything is on the other side of the ropes and he was calling out this person's name loud and clear over and over and I know he heard it you know how I know he heard it I was standing right next to him and I heard it he never even turned around Was he too busy? He had time to chat with his peers. But he had no time to find out what was going on over there. Now, I don't know everything. And so I'm not really going to, you know, I'm not going to sign my judgment on this. But I can tell you the impression it made on me. That's the impression it made on me. And so what Jesus is saying is all of us should strive for not that. All of us should strive to use what we have for the benefit of others, for the good of others, count ourselves servants of others. Now, this was not Greek thinking. There's a a place in Plato where he uses these related words, and he clearly is talking about this. Nobody would want this. Nobody would want to be a servant. Nobody would want to be. Remember, I've told you in the past, Aristotle called a, a, a slave a tool with a soul, just a living tool, that's all a slave was. And Jesus is saying that we should make ourselves slaves and servants. This is one of those places where he he takes the values of the world and just completely turns them upside down. Well, you know why that is? It's because the values of the world are upside down. That's what the fall did to us and still does to us. So... He's saying that your mindset should be not what can I get others to do for me, but what can I do for others? How can I benefit others? What can I do for the good of others? How can I be of service to others? How can I be of use to others? Not how can I get in a position of authority over others so that I can make them do what I want for me. See? Now I can go on. So those are the two ways. And now we've got one why. We've got two ways. We've got one why. Why? Why should I live and think in a way that's opposite of the way of my world? I mean, am I smarter than everybody? Am I better than everybody? Oh, it's not even about that. I didn't come up with it. Wouldn't have come up with it, by the way. Uh, No, it's not about me at all. It's about him. Because what does he say in verse 28? Even as, so here's my reason and here's my pattern. Why should I seek to be a servant and a slave to others? Even as the Son of Man... Well, now there's that word. Where did we last see the Son of Man in Daniel 7? What's the Son of Man doing in Daniel 7? He's coming down with the clouds of heaven to rule over everybody. And he talks now about the coming of the Son of Man, but I don't think this is that coming. Because what does he say? The Son of Man did not come to be served... But rather to serve and to give his soul as a ransom in the place of many. Now, here's the thing in the plan of God. What he says here, well, that really is also the opposite of what we read in Daniel 7, isn't it? Do you remember what happens in Daniel 7? He comes down to the clouds of heaven, to earth, and what does he do there? Well, he reigns, that's right, and, and what's the place of all the nations and everybody? They serve him. It says that in so many words. He comes for them to serve him. So I have to think that the coming he's talking about has got to be a coming before that coming. And in fact, in the plan of God, this coming we read about in Daniel is only possible because of this other coming. And that's the coming he talks about here. Because maybe many of you were thinking, and I was talking about these prophecies that had to be in their mind about... Jerusalem's glory and the Son of Man's reign. But maybe did you think, as I was talking about that, but there are those other prophecies like Isaiah 53? What's in Isaiah 53? A servant? Oh, just the same thing he mentions here, a servant. What does the servant do in Isaiah 53? He dies for the sins of his people. He pours out his soul for many, just as he says here, for many, and secures their forgiveness and their their redemption by... Pouring out his soul for many. You see? So that coming is actually the foundation for the coming of Daniel chapter 7. So now let's look at what he says again here. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his soul as a ransom in the place of many. Now do you see why I'm preaching this section as one. This takes us all the way back to the first section where he tells him he's going up to Jerusalem to be betrayed and to be crucified. This closes that loop. This is the other side of that bracket. This is why he goes there and what he goes there to do. And this is why God allows it, not just allows it, but has planned it. This is the plan of God. So now by what he says, we know why God planned it, why God allows it and why the son accepts it, because this is what he came to do to give his life for many, to give his soul a ransom for many. And this is what he accomplishes by it. So this is the supreme act of service. He doesn't come to give $100 for many. He doesn't come to give his personal yacht for many. He doesn't come to give a body of teaching for many. What does he come to give? His soul, his own life for many to ransom them, to secure their freedom. He does what nobody wanted him to do, but everybody needed him to do. He does what they need for their service. Now, that is what I'm going to focus on more, Lord willing, next week. The meaning of this verse and the meaning of this ransom and the meaning of this action. But for now, just along with the rest of the section, why are disciples called to walk in service? Because the person they're following did that. And that's the whole reason he came. The person that they're following came to serve. And to give his soul a ransom for many by being betrayed, by being betrayed again, by being mocked, whipped, crucified, and by rising from the dead. This is the person we're walking. So now the introduction to the sermon. Why did I call it ambitious dead people? Maybe you don't need me to say, explain why. But what did Jesus say in Matthew 16 when he called people to discipleship? What is it to be a disciple of Jesus? What did he say in Matthew 16, 24 through 27? What did Jesus say? He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and let him further do what? Take up his cross. What do you do on a cross? Just the one thing, you die. That's all you do on a cross. You die, slowly and horribly, but you die. And follow me. So they're walking dead people. They've denied themselves. They've taken up their cross, and they walk after Jesus. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So all of these people were following him, what, what have they done if they're disciples? Well, they've all denied themselves and they've all taken up their cross and they're all following the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his soul a ransom for many. But they're ambitious. How do you be an ambitious dead person? Now, you remember I talked about how two things that don't fit can live in the same brain? There it is. Whenever a Christian is ambitious for personal glory or power, he's an ambitious dead person. We've already denied ourselves. We've already taken up our cross. Where is the room for trying to be superior over others? There is no room for that. What we're called to is the life of resurrected people. And that's a life of humble service. So... Uh, Just my final thought on that final thought is I assume if you're a Christian, you must be sitting there not thinking to yourself. No, no, that's all wrong because it's in the Bible. You can't say that. So you must be sitting there saying, amen, that's true. All that's true. So I just ask these questions in parting. So who have you served here today so far? That's not already a friend or a relative. Or let me ask, who are you going to serve before you leave here today? who's not already a friend or a relative. Isn't that the sort of thinking this calls us to? Yes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we thank you for your son. We thank you for everything about your son. Now we could literally go the rest of the day with all the things that we have to thank you for your son, just for the fact of him, for his coming, for his teaching, for his life, his death, his resurrection for his current session, saving to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him as he always lives to make intercession for us, that he calls people to come to him. And so we pray now, Father, for all who've come in not knowing him as Lord and Savior, that they will hear his call and they will come to find what a living, true, merciful, gracious Savior he is. And we pray for all who've come in weak and weary that they will take encouragement and hope from this knowing that uh, as Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, so he has sat down at the right hand of God. And as we must walk through many tribulations, so we will enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Encourage and, and grant them hope and joy with that. And for all of us, we pray that you will school us to be good students, not just in theory, but in practice of following the one who called us, to serve others, to make ourselves slaves of others, not to use our liberty as a license for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.